Premonition, a very, very unfair advantage. Hello and welcome to the Premonition podcast. This is Ian Collins here. I'm speaking today with a very, very important gentleman who can tell us a lot of very interesting information. This is Robin Hansen, and Robin knows quite a bit about economics. Robin, tell us more about yourself. Hi there. I'm a almost 60-year-old economics professor who doesn't quite feel 60. And uh, in my life, I've, I'd started in engineering and went into physics, and I spent nine years of computer research. And I went back to school to get a social science PhD, and I did political science. And uh, oh, now I've been here at George Mason for almost 20 years. And I've two books recently published, one called The Elephant in the Brain, you can see behind my head over here, uh, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And the other is The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth. Uh, and you know, the one came out about a year ago and the other about uh, two and a half years ago. And I have a very wide range of interests. And I typically, over the last five years or so, mostly teach law and economics. And as I was just saying before our podcast, I don't actually get to talk with that many people about law. I get invited to do podcasts on other topics, but uh, I'm eager to talk about law with somebody who's an expert in law. Well, welcome, welcome. And, and that's what we do in Premonition. We're, we're experts in AI systems and also law, which is, it's always very useful to have that sort of bias at the moment with especially AI being a technology which everybody's talking about. Uh, we've been doing it for the last four years and analyzing the legal industry and coming up with those statistics and those insights which give people a very, very unfair advantage. So with economics, how do you feel that AI and expert systems are going to change the future? Well, I'm relatively skeptical that we're going to see much of a deviation from past trends in the near future. So many people are telling you that we're about to enter an entirely unprecedented world where everything is going to be completely different than the past. And therefore, all of your past experience is a little guide. And it will be revolutionary and almost everything will change really soon. Uh, I will not tell you that. <laughs> I, I will tell you that um, you know, computers have been in increasing in capacity for 70 years at an enormous rate. And so doubling, say, in capacity per dollar every 18 months or two years. That's been going on for a long time. That produces enormous change and increase in abilities. And we're in an economy that doubles every 15 years. <laughs> And right there should make you expect there's a lot of big changes happening all the time in most all industries and areas because how else could you double the total capacity of everything every 15 years if there wasn't a lot of stuff like that happening? So, uh, and we've seen over the last 70 years and even longer, uh, you know, automation, how, how rapidly automation comes in, what kinds of things are more easily automated than others, and uh, the kinds of responses that uh, customers and, and business have to the new possibilities. And I'd say you should just expect more of the same, but that's a lot. Uh, a lot of change has happened in the last century, and you should expect the same rate of a lot of change. I, I agree, and I think that what you said about being, being almost 60 but not feeling it, I, I think that we don't grow up from the age of 18, but what does change is that the cycle of change. Ten years ago, the, the cycle of change, not too much happened in technology. And we look at 10 years ago now, and we didn't even have iPhones. So how society 
uses technology and the new systems that become available it is a big thing right obviously the the main thing is to say is to try to guess which things are near to the edge of feasibility uh so you know as we know the vast majority of income in the world goes to humans because humans are just vastly better at, than most computers uh, at doing most of the jobs that really need doing so we're a long way away from computers being able to take away all the jobs uh, AGI or artificial general intelligence is just not a near-term ability. Uh, but of course, at every era, people are wondering, well, what's the next set of things that will be changed a lot by technology? Because, for example, somebody's doing a task that it's now feasible to swap out and have a machine do that task instead. And uh, that's always been a question about law, for example. <laughs> what are the key tasks that might be automated? How hard are they? And which ones are about to be automated? And that depends on judgments about the difficulty of the task and also depends on judgments about what do the customers actually want and what are the key tasks that, in fact, need to be done. I think you touched on something there that what people want and what people dream about, they don't even know is possible these days and what is possible through things such as premonition.ai systems and that artificial intelligence. Some, some people dream, oh, I wish we could do that. And they don't know that actually that dream has been made a reality and it's being used by organizations today. To be in fact, I, I like in my Age of M book, I cite this study where they looked over roughly a thousand uh, academic papers which had been making forecasts about future technology. And they tried to compare the date at which a technology actually appeared to the date at which it was forecasted to appear. And for a substantial fraction, say 10%, the people making the forecast didn't realize it had already happened. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, and the, the world is that complicated. People often go out of the way to say, I wonder when this will be feasible. And they don't know that it's already, it's, it's already there. Or, or it takes them a long time to write the book, possibly. Who knows? Talking about legal reform, because you're very excited about the legal side of things, what do you think needs to change in the legal area the currently well that's a big leading question now isn't it <laughs> it is rather so your perspective so i am i'm a big think big picture sort of guy and so i try to stand back and look at the biggest issues uh so i'm sure there are many specific things that need to change and i wouldn't deny that but that's not my focus uh you know if i were a lawyer specializing in a particular area i would know much better what particular changes i, I would suggest but standing back I'm more looking at the biggest picture and asking what's what's at the biggest picture the thing that would the changes that would have the biggest potential value uh, and they they're not the easiest ones <laughs> if, if you had a very particular suggestion that you know a court ruling should go this way or that way that's a thing a judge could rule in the next year and then it might happen right but um, I'm thinking about the whole system and the big picture so uh, one thing that really stands out to me is that um, in most other complicated technical systems, we have this feature called rot. Software rots, as you may know. And large complicated systems tend to rot. That is, they accumulate a lot of detail and more interdependencies. And the more detailed interdependencies they have, the harder it is to change anything because the more other things you have to change to match any one change. And I see that as a long-term trend in the law. It's a, it's a, concerning trend. It's not a crisis at any one moment, but the, over time we've been accumulating more and more law, more complicated law, more details, more interdependencies, 
which makes it hard to change law. So in, so in essence, our legal system is more fragile. It's, it's harder to change. Uh, we're more stuck in our previous conceptions and our previous habits because of the nature of the system. Uh, 150 years ago in the United States, an ordinary person typically, when they needed to go to court, they could do it themselves without a lawyer. That was the nature of the law 150 years ago. Um, and, and that was not so much that people were brilliant back then as that law and typical legal cases were pretty simple. Simple enough that an ordinary person could manage it themselves. And over time, we've accumulated this enormous complexity. And that's a problem because when the world changes, things need to change and adapt. So, so in most ordinary software systems, for example, things like the, your iPhone or your you know, Microsoft Office, we have this phenomenon that um, as things get older and more fragile, eventually we just dump them. <laughs> we start over from scratch. And that is the typical fact of software, even though it's enormously expensive, of course, to start over from scratch. You might think, how could it possibly be cheaper to start over from scratch and redo everything from basics than to take an existing thing that mostly does what you want and modify it? But it's true. It really is often easier to start over from scratch. And in fact, that's the typical thing that happens over long cycles. Uh, absolutely. And especially when we consider that software is only ever 90% complete and you're, you're dealing with natural issues within the software, you're right. And a lot of organizations have literally gone back to the drawing board and said, what are our standard processes, refine those processes, map those to a new system, and then implement a new system. And, and, and sometimes in history, we, we did that with law. So for example, the famous Justinian legal code happened when the emperor Justinian said, this looks like a complicated mess. You guys work out a new system. And that's what we're going to do. Um, and of course, uh, Napoleon was inspired by that. Uh, in his era to say, all this law we've got around here is a mess and I'm going to re re-invoke the Justinian law code and polish it up for the current era. And when Napoleon went around conquering Europe, amazingly enough, when he showed up in a place and he conquered them temporarily, he temporarily replaced the legal code with his new Just Justinian-inspired legal code. And he didn't last very long. And of course, most everybody was pretty mad at him and then they hated him and wanted to believe, but they kept his legal code. That is how wow. the Justinian legal code is the typical code around Europe is because during the short time that uh, Napoleon showed up and, and changed their legal code, in a couple of years, everybody said, wow, this is so much better that even though we hate Napoleon, we hate everything about him and we're going to tear down every statue of his and everything that reminds us of him, we're going to keep his legal code. Wow, that, that, that's a very good legacy apart from but much better than his dying words. Um, yes. Which is, which is good. That, that, that's really interesting. Back in the days when uh, we could take over an empire very easily. That's good. Okay, so Donald Trump needs to reform the legal system. Instead. Well, so this is, this is a key problem uh, in, in our world, which is just in the last century, we've had a lot more peace and prosperity, emphasize peace. Uh, but a lot of these major changes in societies have been driven by war. And we are thankfully not having the vast destruction that war brings, but we're also acquiring more and more of this sort of fragility of our social systems that don't usually change except for these under these extreme problems. Again, we, we, we look at things such as uh, Brexit, which is happening in uh, Great Britain at the moment. It's such a complicated issue that the standard man 
doesn't understand both sides of it. And there are interviews with people saying Brexit's going right. to affect my business. Right. Now, now, now think business. Back, if you think back a century or more ago, if one part of an, of a political entity wanted to separate, it was much simpler. Just like you could defend yourself in court, as, as, you know, 150 years ago in the U.S. Back then, if a part of a, you know, they might not let them go. There might be a war issue about whether you want to let someone to succeed. But the mechanics of succeeding were vastly simpler because there was just vastly less legal infrastructure. I mean, the thing that makes Brexit hard at the moment is all that complicated European legal infrastructure. Like, you know, I just, in the last week I heard, Britons didn't realize that uh, they couldn't ship stuff on pallets to Europe after the breakup because legal European rules have this different rules for the kind of pallet stuff have to be shipped onto them if you're outside of the union versus if you're inside. So if you're inside, they have more excuses, you know, more, more lean, leeway and you're allowed to use cheaper pallets. But if it comes from outside, you have to make sure they, they're very, you know, there couldn't possibly be any bugs in them, for example, hiding in the wood. And that Britain uh, hadn't even realized that until recently. It just shows you like the detail and complexity of the legal systems we have make it hard to do something that should be simple in some sense of like, hey, breaking away from the union. Yes, exactly. So on, on the legal reform side of things, do you think technology could be an innovator or, or vehicle for change? I think technology could help change, but I, in some sense, the fundamental problem of the legal system is the barriers to change. That is, a legal system has all this enormous potential to, to be innovated and improved and aided by all sorts of things, but it is, by, in its structure, it is very resistant to change. And that's the key problem. And that's why most of the potential improvements aren't realized. Not that they are, would be mechanically infeasible, but it's just legally infeasible in the sense the legal system just won't let them happen. Um, and so when I think about a priority, I think the key priority is how can you take parts of the legal system and make them more open to innovation, make them more flexible, changeable. Uh, so for example, you know, one of the most open innovation parts of the legal system is contract, contract law in the sense that you and I can basically make a little piece of law between us by writing a contract. And we have a lot of freedom about what contract we can write. And so the more freedom we have about what contract we can write, then in principle, for example, we, that part of that contract can be a piece of software that we delegate to that, that makes choices. And then that allows all the complications and, and sophistication of software and artificial intelligence to be included in our relationship because we contract over that. Now, to the extent that contract law says, no, 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 you can't delegate to this program part of the rules, that gets in the way of this solution of putting software as part of the law. And so in, in our current legal system, that is an issue. That is, you and I can write a contract that says we're going to use this piece of software, but if you don't like the way that turns out, you can sue me and the courts won't give that much deference to the fact that we agreed to use the software, at least in many cases, in which case, you know, our incentive to do that is, is much weaker. And hence the, uh, the onset of uh, smart contracts coming around using uh, new... Right, so, uh, so in fact... I mean, a lot of people are celebrating and hopeful about the blockchain, and it's got some interesting characteristics, but in some sense, one, its main advantage in many people's minds is just the fact that it would be a different legal system that isn't encumbered by all the precedent and structure that, that our current legal system is. If you could somehow escape, and that's kind of the hope, if you'd escape all this current precedent, but that's a problem because most of the organizations that want to use the blockchain also claim that they're going to follow all laws. They're definitely not going to be violating any other laws. <laughs> 
in which case it's no longer able to escape all the precedent of the ordinary legal system. You know, so for example, you know, I've known and even been involved with companies that on the surface look like they might violate some outside laws. And technically they could, and you might think they could get away with, but they, in order to make that happen, they would have had to pick a different social strategy. They'd have to like be hidden, not say who they were or where they live. <laughs> But they, they don't do that. They, they, they announce who they are and where their headquarters are, and they show up at meetings. And, now, and then, well, the ability to sort of defy existing laws pretty limited at that point. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting that the idea of cryptocurrency is that it's a, it's a unregulated currency which you can trade with globally. And all the banks said, no, that's a bad thing. Then they thought about creating a cryptocurrency just for themselves, and now they're launching their own cryptocurrency. Um, just trying to jump on the back. Right, yeah, but, but the, the things they're doing aren't, don't have much potential to defy existing regulations because these organizations are very embedded in existing regulations. So, and that, to many people, was one of the big potentials of crypto is that somehow you could escape existing regulation. But, you know, through that sort of style, you're, you're not going to escape it. Maybe you, can, maybe you can make some features a little nicer, but you're not really escaping the basic legal precedent. Uh, right. So, 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 and the answer to your question, like, if if we could expand freedom of contract in some interesting ways, that would open more space for innovation, and so that that would be one generic recommendation. So, so the, the highest level recommendation is, you know, we need somehow to cut out all the cruft and and return to some simplicity because that's just a generic feature of any complicated system. We're we're in trouble because we've got all this compl- complexity that's piling up and making it fragile. So that recommendation number one is somehow somehow do a reset to get rid of a lot of that, which is a really big recommendation and hard to do. Another recommendation would be to uh, open up the space for more competition and, and, and possibilities with contract. That is basically enforce more contracts, enforce more contracts, literally where you say, that's what you wrote. That's what you wanted. That's what we're going to do. And the more you did that, the more space you'd be opening up for innovation through contract, because that's one of the main ways that you can innovate in law at the moment is through contract. Uh, absolutely. And and that's something we're looking at at Premonition. We're, we're looking at all the data we can collect over the United States and other countries. But taking the United States, we, we can access 87% of the court data within the United States. We can pay for an extra 2 to 7%. But the rest of the data isn't even online at the moment. Right. Like, and and we're, even pulling, we're even pulling data, which is published using something called WordPerfect back from the 1980s. Absolutely. So, so there's a number of ways in which the legal system is so broken and, and old that you just laugh. And, and one of them is just the keeping them out of records, of course. Obviously, basically, not only should all records be digitized and available online, they should be put into some mildly common standard format. There's no necessary reason why every damn county needs to have its own format for recording the outcome of a trial, uh, you know, that's just an obvious thing that um, any, you know, if you had a new company taking over this industry, that's an obvious thing they would do. They would just do it. Uh, absolutely. And, and this then brings us to, to one of my favorite subjects, which is managing duplicate names. Um, and, and that's something which the medical industry are fighting with as well, because I, I've, I've worked with the medical industry and the, the fact that they've got a 0.1% error rate that they could be giving the wrong person the, the wrong medicine based upon their name and not having a unique identifier for everybody. Absolutely. 
So obviously, just a unique identifier is an easy innovation that would help both law and computing and all sorts of things. And I'm old enough to remember the initial discussion of those things long ago, which is that when people were first hearing about computers, this was one of the scary scenarios is everybody would have a number. Yeah. And the government would use everybody's number to do things. And, and even people remember it pointed to the book of Revelation where there was the mark of the beast and everybody was given a number. And this is like this terrifying scenario. And so businesses and governments said, no, 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 we're not going to be the beast. We're not going to do that to you. And so they, they chose to go out of their way not to just give a simple identifier. Yes. And, and now we're paying the price through inefficiency and systems which are duplicated absolutely i mean you know these are just easy win things but so there's the obvious point of just saying isn't this dumb that we aren't doing this but the meta point is okay how do we understand how a system like this fails to do that why i mean we have lots of other industries who take a while to get kicking you know pulled kicking and streaming into the modern world but they do it much faster than the law has so the law is broken in a much more serious way than most ordinary industries are in terms of just having incumbents who are lazy and not paying attention and not wanting to make a change unless they're forced to do but still you know most industries have been pushed into doing these things that there is a lot to be said that there's the people who use the law and then there's the insiders who know how to work the law right so when you have a complicated broken system that does create rents for the people who understand it better and who can work it better and that's a problem though they typically oppose change more than others but of course those insiders have existed in all the other industries too and yet change has happened in all the other industries so that, that can't be enough to explain why this industry is different is, is it different for exactly the reason you outlined before that it it's history is so long that people enjoy well, using that history. Almost all the industries we know also have long, long histories. And groceries, for example, go way back. It's not like grocery doesn't have an ancient history, but still the grocer industry have managed to produce, you know, readable barcodes and recognized identifiers. You know, they, they've adopted a lot of innovations. Um, I would say it's more that the legal system is not very competitive. Uh, that is, in, in most areas, you really can't choose a different legal system. Uh, geographically uh, constrained to use the legal system that's officially approved in your area. And because it's entrenched and not very competitive, there's not much pressure to innovate and adapt, much less so than in other industries. So your grocer, you'll always have a grocer somewhere near you, but it won't necessarily be the same grocer that was a century ago unless that grocer actually keeps up and stays competitive. Yes, I, I agree. But using that analogy, it's very easy to see what you're getting for your money. You, you see the goods, you, you're there, you, you determine whether those apples are worth the price they're asking, you hand over your money and you get those apples. With the legal industry, you see a billboard or your golfing buddy suggests something, you don't quite know about their performance. Sure, absolutely. So a, a better comparison would be insurance for rare events. Because mostly the legal system is sitting in the background as a resource for you, but most of your value is regarding rare events. What if somebody were to sue you? What if you needed to sue someone? Uh, mostly you, you have a contract, et cetera, but you don't dispute it. It's not a problem. And so you don't really notice whether the legal system is doing a good job, uh, except when you turn out to really need an unusual case. So, And it is true that most people assume the legal system is pretty good until they get involved, and, and then they find out that for them it's not working at all but that's such a tiny fraction that they don't complain much enough to make other people you know, feel their pain and, and 
push. But say insurance is also like that in the sense that insurance is offering you a product that mostly you don't need, mostly you don't pay attention to. It's in rare situations that, that it shows up and matters. And so you might ask, well, yes, but insurance in many places is a relatively competitive industry and how innovative is it over time? So the fact that it takes time to realize that an industry product, an insurance product is defective and should be better does slow down innovation, presumably, in the insurance industry compared to others. Makes it harder to realize you have a bad product, therefore harder for a bad supplier to go out of business. But it still happens and faster than law. Insurance industry innovates much faster than law and insurance industry is less, you know, broken than law. They do have identifiers in insurance and they go out of their way to innovate in many ways. Absolutely. And it's quite, quite interesting you say that because we're finding a massive amount of traction at the moment with the insurance industry. What they want to know is how do I, do I, am I going to win this court case, uh, which I've got? Could I change my attorney to get a better outcome or should I just settle out of court as well as using our data for real-time risk analysis on some of their larger cases. Right, so um, I have some proposals that I'll run by you now soon (laughs) on how we could uh, use that power of the insurance industry to reform law in ways that we don't do now. So the, the legal, again, the insurance industry is this example of an industry that deals with rare, unusual cases and uh, pretty big extreme cases where it's hard to get a lot of social information about whether it's working well for people and it still does an okay job and try to use that to reform the legal industry where we also have rare cases that it's hard to tell but in addition we have not much competition. So um, I'd say the part of our current legal system at least in the United States for example and probably many related nations that's the most broken because it's the least competitive and the most entrenched is the criminal system. Uh, as you know, you know the, the, the non-criminal system, the civil system, has a lot of flexibility in the sense that you can choose your lawyers, you can choose your venue, you can choose how to co- write the contracts, you can choose a lot of things like that. But the criminal system is much more constrained. Uh, that is, the government decides for each thing what is a crime, they decide how big a crime it is, then they decide what kind of punishment it's going to is. Is it going to have a fine? Is it going to have jail time? Then they hire government employees to go investigate crimes and then other government employees to prosecute them and a third set of government employees to enforce punishment when it's not a fine. Uh, So these are large government bureaucracies that handle these various aspects of crime that are, um, I think, you know, quite inefficient. And so I think we could use insurance to, um, to make this much more efficient. That, that sounds like a good idea. And it, it's certainly interesting, the idea of reform. I know a lot of organizations are creating systems for both insurance and also for the legal industry, but it's going to take a long time. And it, as you say, it's a very complex machine to unravel. Right. And part of it is just that even if you have an innovation, there's nobody to take it to to get approval because it's this centralized system that can't be changed. But if you'll indulge me for a minute, I'll, I'll outline this vision of if we could make the change, what, we, what it would be. So one key point is, uh, you know, it's standard in the literature that we don't use fines as much in criminal as we do in civil because a lot of people specialize in being criminals and not having much money. <laughs> and so you need another way to punish them. So ordinary civil courts, almost all punishments, almost all are, are fines basically, or 
cash payments. Yes, there are some cases where you you ask you say you you just must do this thing, but most of the time when you sue in court, you say I want money, and and then money is transferred, and that's pretty efficient as a form of punishment. So why don't we just use more fines in the criminal system? And the answer is, well, just a lot of people just don't have much money. So we have to do something else to punish them. So we, we do jail in our world. In other worlds, they've done torture or exile or death. But you have to do something else. So that's one of the key problems is that people just don't have much money, especially when they specialize in being a criminal because they are basically um, trying to hide. And so they try to hide their money. They try to hide their activities. And, and as a result of that, that's one of the reasons we've had specialized government police. So in the ordinary civil system, because when you catch somebody, they pay money, that creates an incentive for someone to go pursue them in order to get the money. So of course, most civil private enforcement is privately funded, right? You, you, you think you might sue someone, and so you hire a lawyer, a detective, and you go collect the information, and then you sue, and then maybe you'll get paid. The reason we don't do that in criminal is because since we don't have big fines, we don't have big fine amounts to pay the private enforcers that we might use. And so you might imagine we'd create just a bounty system where we just put up the cash uh, and that would be feasible, but it's, it's somewhat wary because you know, we're already having to pay the money ourselves. All right, so um, that's sort of outlining this key problem with the current system. And, you know, and of course, because we have government police, now we have the problem of government police corruption. Government police are very able to coordinate with each other, blue, famous blue wall of silence. And so uh, it's hard to impose rules on government police and actually have them be enforced because the people doing the enforcing are, can coordinate too easily with the people they're supposed to enforce against. And so that's why we have a lot of you know, rules being, it's hard to impose rules that actually get enforced on police. You can write rules on paper, but um, that you know, most, mostly they do whatever seems to be in their political interest to placate their political you know, supporters. And sometimes that's being nice, and sometimes it's not. Okay, so, so this is the setup of the current problem with the current system. So um, the first simple solution is to copy the required insurance that we have for automobile driving. So at the moment on the road, we've, we realize this problem, hey, if you smash into somebody, you might not have enough money to pay. Well, we're going to require you to get liability insurance to make sure you have enough money to pay if you smash into someone. So the simple generalization there is just general crime insurance. Everybody has to buy insurance to cover any crime they might commit. And, th and once we do that, now we can make all crimes pay off in fines because the insurance company will be there to pay. So we can go to a full fine system for the punishment from the point of view of the public, but we're going to allow pretty general contracts between the criminals or, or the, the ordinary people and their insurance company. So if you have a contract with the insurance company and it's just of the form, if you do something wrong, we have to pay the fine, the insurance company might go, we, we're not so sure your incentives are good there. And so you might write an insurance with contract with the insurance company says, yeah, in that case, you can take off my thumb or you can put me in jail or exile me. We're gonna allow the wide range of punishments as part of the deal that a person makes with their insurance company and including monitoring, for example. And now, uh, and now it's the fine that's the relationship to the rest of the society. The rest of society can just impose a fine and be assured that we'll get paid. The insurance company's there to pay. And if you want something other than fine for incentive purposes, now that's a part of the contract of the insurance company. And so, Obviously, one, one problem everybody mentions is that, well, there's some people who so, look so likely to be criminals, their premiums are going to be really high. And of course, you might say, well, you know, some, some cold-hearted person might just say, 
okay, so they should leave the country. They should go away because clearly it's just not worth having them around because their expected harm to us is more than whatever benefit they could provide because they can't find way to stay around. But you realize, well... Catapult them over the wall. Right, yeah. but, but, uh, but you could realize that there's other possibilities. So they, they could have a contract with their insurance company that, say, puts an ankle bracelet on them that knows where they are all the time, or maybe even they have to sit on a work farm somewhere and they're not allowed to leave. There's obviously a lot of contracts that would drastically lower the premiums. And then they'd have a choice about whether to adopt which, which premium reducing policies in order to reduce the premiums. And of course, in addition, if we feel that we like them and just want to help, we could just subsidize their insurance, but at least we'd know what we were paying, you know, that we were paying it as in the current system where you kind of, it's kind of opaque. You don't realize that you're subsidizing people who have a high chance for crime in the current system because it's implicit. Let's use that as an example. Let, let, let's do this for the people listening. So it, it, I, could, I get insurance against committing a crime, whatever that might be, and then, and then I commit a crime, and then I've got to pay either a large fine or with my, and my fingers chopped off or whatever. Whatever the deal you wrote with your insurance company. The rest of us didn't pick this deal. It's a deal you picked. Yeah. What happens after that? Surely my premiums go up massively because yeah. I'm... Right, but again, it's the same issue. Um, now you may have to restrict your freedoms even more in order to get a good deal in order to get an acceptable premium, because of course um, the insurance company now sees you as a higher risk, but that was already an issue before. So the point is you, you have a certain perceived risk and you can adjust that risk with respect to the insurance company by adjusting the terms of your deal. You can increase the strength of the punishment if you're caught. You can increase the monitoring, what they're allowed to see. You can increase limits on your behavior, where you're allowed to go, when, curfews. And um, those knobs are enough to reduce your premiums you know, in principle, down to really low because, hey, you could just, you know, again, you could have a work farm off in the forest where you're not even allowed to leave the work farm and that would drastically lower your risk of committing a crime somewhere else. Um, obviously, exile becomes another option is um, you just get tossed out and some other po polity has to deal with you. So, so the advantages here, again, are um, flexibility. So now the government only has to decide for each thing, you know, it's, if it's a crime and what the fine is, and uh, in each case, they can decide was this or guilty or not. So they, they keep control over deciding what a crime is and whether it's happened in any one case. But now uh, they don't have to decide how to punish people. They don't have to decide who's, who's justified in pulling somebody over or what kind of monitoring is legal or not, whether the government can look at phone records. They don't have to decide any of that stuff because that's all decided by contract uh, with the insurance company. And then because every... Crime is punished by a fine. Now we can use bounty hunters to catch criminals because, hey, there's this fine that gets paid. So we basically say to people, you know, whatever the fine amount is for this crime, that's your bounty. If you can go find it and prosecute it and convince a court that it happened, you get that bounty. And now we don't, we can avoid police corruption and things like that of, of, of we don't need government police necessarily to do those pursuit, investigation, prosecution roles. Wow. I was going to ask about that, about people being wrongfully accused, et cetera. But uh, you've covered that. That, that. That's pretty good. So, so, so thanks for listening to my big grand, grand idea. But I, I think that's great. I think we should thank the listeners as well, listening to this on their way home from work or whatever they're doing, because this is actually waking up a lot of people's brains to think what is possible. Um, so tell me, tell me about your books. What's your, 
What, what do our listeners need to be buying? Which one should they buy first? Well, the elephant in the brain, again, uh, behind my head here, uh, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, is of much wider interest. So uh, the first book, The Age of M, is about a particular future scenario of artificial intelligence. If some of you readers are just really into the future, poss what's possible with future robots, then they may well be interested in that because it's a realistic, careful analysis of what would actually happen when a certain kind of robots rule the earth. But for most people, that's of less interest. Uh, the Elephant in the Brain book is, is more wider interest. and basically says that um, for a wide range, wide range of areas in your life, you think you know why you're doing things and you're wrong. You're just consistently wrong about why you do things. And in the book, we, we give sort of the first third of the book is give the abstract idea of why this might be possible or happen. And then we go through 10 areas specifically saying, and you're wrong about your motives in conversation, in art, in charity, in religion, in politics, in medicine, in education. Uh, and, and we try to convince you in each of these areas, uh, there's a standard story you would give about why you're doing what you're doing. And then we give you some data that suggests that just doesn't make sense. And then we offer an alternative theory that makes more sense of these key uh, features of the world to say what you're really doing. In some future version of the book or extension, I'd love to do law because I think there's a lot of ways in which we aren't honest with ourselves about law and what's going on in law. And um, there's a lot of interesting puzzles to work out there, but I wasn't as confident of that to put it in this first book. But I'm, you know, I'm very interested in collecting. So the key thing that we do in each area is to collect the puzzles, the things that don't make so much sense from the usual point of view. And that's the key that's the key resource you use to generate an alternative explanation. And so I would just love help from you and everybody else to find out these puzzles. So one puzzle I learned from you before was the puzzle that most customers of lawyers don't really care much to get track records for lawyers. <laughs> Relatively little pressure and interest in track records for lawyers, which goes against their self-conceived explanation of themselves, which is, in this legal case, I mainly care about winning or losing. And therefore, I want a warrior or agent who's going to help me win and not lose. That's certainly what most people would say about themselves in a legal fight situation. But it doesn't make that much sense of their behavior with respect to a lawyer's track record. Absolutely. And I... I love having my morning coffee and going over some data and looking up some random data because we always pick up outliers. Not only do we pick up the really good people, but we also pick up lawyers who, let's say an average case is 300 days. There are lawyers out there who their average for that case is 1,500 days and they've never won a case. And these people are probably the ones with the biggest billboards as well. Right. It, 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 it's incredible. But you don't know that. It's, like we said, you go to the grocers, you know exactly what you're getting and what you're paying for. Right. We, it's we not even, I mean, that's just, you could imagine there's some fraction of idiot consumers out there that'll buy anything. Uh, but this is true for even for companies that hire lawyers. Companies aren't that interested in getting these track records. They, they like ordinary people, mostly go with the prestige of the previous institutions that these lawyers were affiliated with prestige of a legal shop or a company they work for or a school they graduated from. And so it highlights that in many areas of life, we care a lot more about prestige than we like to admit. Massively. We've, we've done a study into the difference between hiring an attorney and hiring a 
a, a barrister type a partner and it it's literally five times more an hour you're paying but in the court that only gives you a four percent advantage yeah that's crazy but well, we have clues yeah. like this in other areas of life that people do, in fact, care more about prestige than they let on. Uh, obviously, one area is just investments, financial investments. As you, as you may know, the, the simple standard advice is just to put your money in an index fund, which uh, there's very little management fee, and you'll get sort of the average return. And then there are all these managed funds out there that say, no, 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 we can do better than that, but you'll have to pay us a management fee. And on average, they, they do a really crappy job of producing higher return with their management fee. You're better off, on average, with the index fund. But still, there's enormous demand for these management investments, and partly it looks like prestige. Looks like if I went with the index, right, I have to admit, I, I don't know about better than anybody else. And I don't have any better contacts than anybody else. But if I invest in a managed fund, I'm claiming that I know better than other people, and I'm better claiming I have this connection that's more prestigious than most people have. I have a connection to this prestigious investment fund. And that's partly why, so I went and visited, I think, Jane Street once and did a debate there and then talking to them and, and they said, you know, we could have a lot more money in our funds, but it turns out when people give us money, they think we should answer their damn phone calls all the time. And so they said, no, 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 if, if you're going to insist on you know, calling us and making us answer your calls, well, then we can't take your money. You know, we, we have a limited number of people we can take money from because we just don't have that much time to answer your calls. And so, in fact, real investment houses are limited in that way because people want them to take their calls. That's part of the prestige connection. It's not just that I'm putting my money into this prestige organizations because it's that I put my money in there and they take my calls. <laughs> and we talk. Yeah. Oh, I can phone up my guy and just ask him about this. Right, exactly. I, I, and similarly with lawyers, I presume part of the idea is you get to name job a lawyer, a, a, a legal firm, and in your world that that means something. And that, that cachet of that, name and prestige it means something you know not just that i hired them once or have some distant relation to them like they take my calls right we need to look into that i think we need some kind of scoring system in that database when we're looking at uh, legal firms that that would be very interesting and d d difficult to actually uh, put into action uh, because we'd have to review what people think is prestigious but but in interesting interesting uh Thanks. That that that's good to know. How people work. So so an, an, another thing that that people are that's puzzling about laws. I mean, I did a blog post on this recently, which is there's a lot of laws out there that people don't like that much, and they they are willing to be vocal about wanting weaker enforcement, but they don't want to take them off the books. So uh, just like prostitution or immigration, or even jaywalking, you know, there's just a lot of laws that people. If there's much enforcement, people go, that's just mean and, and cruel, and, and you should just stop that. You should just back off. But they still want them on yeah. the books. They still want the law to exist. They don't want to zero it out. Um, even though in any, most any one case, if somebody's enforcing the law, they'll, they'll go tisk tisk and say, that's bad. You don't want to be doing that. That's, that's mean, and why don't you give them a better chance, and why don't you, you know, have some heart and sympathy? And, and so there's this interesting, like, mild contradiction in yeah they want the control but they don't want it to be implemented in every single case so you know at some level it looks like they want discretion and they want authorities to have discretion and uh you know the question is well you know in general we're, we're, we're obviously many features of our legal system are designed to <laughs> not allow authorities to have big discretion i mean we could just give the police and say hey 
you think somebody's doing something bad, then you know you put them away, and we'll trust you. You know, we don't need laws, we don't need rules, we don't need court proceedings. You know, you're the authority. You just go decide and do it, right? We don't want that, apparently, right? We 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 don't want a legal system like that. Some societies have had legal systems like that, or some like some schools are like that. If you're ever a kid, there's a principal and there's teachers and you know, principal doesn't like things, something, then boom, it, it gets stopped and gets punished. And that's the end of it. There doesn't need to be any rules. <laughs> right. True. True. Listeners. Thank you for sticking with the podcast. Cause this is very interesting and I'm learning a lot. And this is really opening up my eyes to a lot of things here. What, what about yourself? Where do you get your news from? What, what, tell, tell me about the, the sources of information which you consume to, to think like this, because there's so much fake news out there. There must be some way that you get your information. Well, so I'm old by this point. I'm nearly 60. So I've had a lot of accumulation over my lifetime. Now, I'm in the habit of reading the newspaper every morning just because I started that habit long ago when most everybody did that. Now hardly anybody does that. I, of course, uh, I follow some friends and blogs and uh, I'm on Twitter and I see some other people say and Facebook. But honestly, um, most of the key insights I think I, I can tell you are just things you slowly notice over a lifetime. And then when you notice them, you make sure to remember them. And those are the key datums that really are impressive. And so notice when something's puzzling and notice when there's a datum about a puzzle and just hold on to that. Right. And don't even, so for example, you know, one datum about the law that's always struck me is that uh, the, Internal Affairs Department that uh, is supposed to find police corruption reports to the same <laughs> authority as would be embarrassed if police corruption were to be found. It uh, makes you wonder whether there's why you have this Internal Affairs Department if they are not really that independent of the authority who's who's um, you know supposed to be responsible for preventing it. Um, once you notice that pattern, it sticks in the back of your head, and you say, "Hmm." Hmm. And there's no news. I mean, I don't think I ever saw a news article about that. I just once like notice it and I go, Hey, that's important. Make a note of that. And then I've spent my life collecting these things. So for example, I, I learned in, in uh, health economics uh, a long time ago that there was this famous Rand experiment called the Rand health center experiment, wherein they randomly assigned people to more or less medicine. And they found that the people who had more medicine because it was cheaper for them weren't any healthier. And that's go, oh my goodness, that's like, that's important. That's really important. And I spent a lot of time trying to think about that and pay attention to it. You know, in my newspaper, the Washington Post here locally, um, every week there's a health and science section, which is mostly health and medicine articles. And I've never seen that mentioned in the 20 years I've been reading it. So <laughs> there's a sense which, you know, just notice basic important things about the world. Just like one thing I recommend to anybody is read the introductory textbook in just about every field. Before you read anything else, just read all the intro textbooks. They're full of dense information. Fabulous. Excellent. Well, listeners, there you go. You, you've heard it here. Go out, buy Robin's book, and open up your eyes to what is possible. It, it almost sounds like this could be the making of a Black Mirror episode. Certainly does sound interesting. Well, so many forms of uh, social innovation would make exciting science fiction, in a sense. Uh, and I've always focused on treating possible social innovations as as interesting and, and as big potential for changing the world as possible technical innovations. Yeah, absolutely. Most science fiction isn't written from that point of view because most science fiction writers and readers don't know much about possible social innovations. 
But there is that question, does science fiction give science something to aim for? It should do that, both with physical technologies and computer technologies and social technologies. Fabulous. Uh, if science fiction were describing social innovations, then it would give people something to aim for with social innovation, and that would be good. But that's not as exciting as the transporter or the holodeck from uh, Star Trek. I example. think it's just as exciting, but, but maybe that's me. Yeah, we, we, we shall see. With, with programs such as Black Mirror, um, people are starting to realize that the future and the potential of the future is, is very interesting. One question before we leave, Robin. Um, you're, you're obviously a very logical thinker, and I, I noticed on your bio that uh, you're, you enjoy listening to Vangelis. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I kind of got hooked back when in the movie uh, Chariots of Fire well, long ago, and I liked the theme song there, and so then I found his other stuff and decided I like that stuff too. But I know there's very little accounting for taste, so I'm, I don't feel very strongly compelled to recommend things I like when it's just a matter of taste I can't explain. Well, I, I, I enjoy Van Gellis and also uh, Jean-Michel Gerard. I don't know what it is, but ever since I was like six years old, I've been very much into that sort of the, the, the logical sort of music from the synthesizer, shall we say. So, I mean, w one obvious fact is that different styles of music appeal to different emotional packages. That is, they are trying to induce different emotions. So I, I, would, I would love to see more careful research to just pin down what are the different emotions that different kinds of music are trying to inspire. But say Vangelis, one of the kinds of music that it tries to inspire that I think is uh, something I really treasure that others don't so much is some sort of sense of glory, some sort of grand, glorious potential. Yeah, that's very true. But there's other, other people who that's not a kind of emotion they're looking for. And so they have a different musical genres. And so there is, there is vast potential in the world. There is vast, glorious potential. Massively. I once went to a Radiohead gig and it was very depressing and I couldn't believe people actually enjoyed themselves. I think going to the bathroom was the most enjoyable part of that concert. <laughs> well, then you probably don't like whatever emotions they are trying to uh, really make clear in that context. Yes, probably. Probably being morose and bored, I think. Yes. Anyway. Well, morosity is, is an emotion many people treasure. Ooh, not me. But anyway, I prefer to be happy. Robin, it's been fantastic speaking to you. It's been a great pleasure. And I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, I hope our listeners have as well. Please, if you've enjoyed this, send your questions in. Look at Robin's uh, books. Uh, look at the premonition.ai website if you want to find more about what we're doing with the legal industry. And Robin, do, do you have a website? Uh, of course. You, you just Google my name. It's easy to find on my website, uh, hanson.gmu.edu. I have a blog, Overcoming Bias. I'm on Twitter at, at Robin Hanson. Uh, so I'm relatively easy to find. So please, listeners, go there now. Subscribe to the blog, get on the Twitter, and get onto your favorite book supplier, which is probably Amazon, and, and just order one of his books and have a read of that and open up your mind. Robin, it's been great. Thank you very much. Great to be here. And no doubt we'll catch up with you soon. We'll, we'll do this again sometime. I look forward to it. Thank you. Bye-bye.